0: Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host Stacey Washington.
1: Welcome to the show, Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm going to tell you guys about it's, it's it's outside, it's in our yard. This huge, it's a huge patch. It's like maybe 18 inches by 24 inches of mushrooms. But from my kitchen window, I couldn't tell what it was because it's about 200 feet away from our our kitchen window. And so I thought it was a deer. You know how when the deers are babies, they they lie down kind of in a circle in a depression in your yard and the mom leaves them there and they basically sleep all day. They sleep all night and the mom just comes over and nurses them and then they stay there. They're basically hidden in plain view. We found a deer like that before. And so I thought that's what it was, but I thought it was kind of odd because I could see it from the window and usually you can't see it. From a distance because they're hidden. Well, in this case, I kind of felt like because it hadn't moved, I saw it there the second day and I didn't feel like I wanted to go out there and see what it was because what if it was dead? You know, because we've had that happen where another wild animal has killed a deer on our property and we've had to call the town to come out and they send out people to come and get the the carcass. So I didn't want to go out there and be face to face with an animal that had been, you know, had, had met an untimely death. So I told my husband about it. I said, "Hey, there's an animal by the stump in our yard, and it's it's kind of far off, but I can see it from here, and it's big." And you know, I at that point I didn't have an idea of how like how many inches, but I kind of was guesstimating. I was like, "It's it's good size. I think it's a dead deer." So my husband, of course, he immediately you know goes right out there. He takes a look. He comes back in. He's like, "It's not a deer. It's a patch of mushrooms." And as soon as he said it, something like I don't know what it was, but it rose up within me and I got grossed out. Now, I like mushrooms. I like to cook them. I like to eat them. But this grossed me out because it was so big. And so then he started describing it like, he said, it looks like the back of a dinosaur, but it's mushrooms. And it's, you know, it's like a lot of them. It's more than one mushroom, but it's a big, it's a big mushroom plant and it's growing and it's getting, and and it's out there. And so then after he told me what it was and I felt that kind of revulsion and I really didn't know why I felt revolted, but I was just like, what's, this is so gross. Then every time I go over to the kitchen sink to wash dishes or to put my plate, you know, in the dishwasher, I glance out there and I see it and it would make me feel like, you know, like I was choking. Like I was just so grossed out by it. So today he said he went back out there and it was bigger than before. He said it's like 18 inches by 24 inches and it looks like it's growing pretty fast. I'm like, I'm so grossed out by this. So. I actually told him, I, I know this is irrational. It's completely ridiculous. But I actually feel like I can't go out there and take a look at it. And I don't have phobias. I'm not unnaturally afraid of heights or small places or big places. I don't have any of that stuff going on. But this patch of mushrooms has actually grossed me out to the point where I can't go out there and look at it. So just a little while ago, before the show started, my husband sent me a text message. He's like, look out the window. And I looked out there and it was gone. He went out there and hacked it up like with something, and removed it so I can't see it from the window anymore. That's marriage, you guys. That's love. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kenneth Barnes, chair at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, author of Redeeming Capitalism. Dr. Barnes, thank you for joining us today.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having
1: me. Sure. So I think this is one of the most important subjects that we can tackle, especially in this day and this time, the politically... Um, rancorous kind of language that permeates everything where I remember when politics used to be something that you really only discussed it at certain times with certain people. And outside of those times, really, it was just business as usual. You just lived your life and it has crept into everything. And so it, accordingly, some of the concepts that have been really integral to our country where you know, like capitalism, something that was seen as by all Americans as a universal good, has now come under attack as something that's bad, the source of inequality, something that's evil. And your book, um, "Redeeming Capitalism," is is you making the case for the fact that you find capitalism to be a biblical concept?
2: Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I find it to be a biblical concept. Um, what I say is that. Capitalism is a subject, not an object. Capitalism doesn't possess any hypostasis of its own, any traits of its own. It's not centrally organized. There is no single intelligence behind it. It's just a term we use to describe the cumulative effects of countless individual and corporate economic decisions. And if it's in a relatively lightly regulated environment... And uh, if it's sufficiently monetized, you get capitalism, you get what we call capitalism. So the good news is that left to its own devices, it can be an exceptionally good uh, creator of wealth. The bad news is it doesn't have a moral compass of its own. So therefore, you know, we shouldn't be uncritical of capitalism. We have to ask the question, uh, what's good about capitalism, what's bad, uh, and what's ugly? And we want to eliminate the ugly and overcome the bad and, and celebrate and expand the good. So my, uh, my approach um, is, I, I think, a very fair and pragmatic approach. I'm a person who spent most of my life doing international business on a rather uh, high level all over the world. So I appreciate all the good of capitalism. But, you know, in the boardroom, sometimes I saw the, uh, the not-so-good side. So I understand why people get upset. I understand... The effects of the global financial crisis, but I tell people if we don't redeem it, we're going to hate what we place in
1: it. Well, and I, I like to point out that anytime you have human beings involved, you're going to see things that are innately good abused, and so we have to police ourselves, we have to police each other, and police ourselves. So how how does the Bible make the case for capitalism and liberty oriented principles?
2: Well, again, it's not a question of the Bible making the case for it. Uh, What I say is that if we look at the history of capitalism, um, if we look at different ethics, we see that in the traditional capitalism observed by the likes of Adam Smith, it was undergirded by, uh, if you will, an Enlightenment interpretation of traditional Judeo-Christian ethics. And it worked very well. It worked not only well for individuals, but it also worked for the common good. It worked for all of society. And concepts like thrift um, would have been absolutely a normal part of the vocabulary. Uh, Questions of fairness in, in terms of wages and things of that nature would have been normal. And it wouldn't have digressed to the point where it is today, where really the only driver, if you will, is to make as much money as possible. And we know that that will lead to behavior that is not conducive to a good political economy. I also look at the, the uh, economic ethic that was observed by Max Weber, the so-called Protestant work ethic. Uh, and that era also was undergirded by a very strong, almost puritanical form of, of Calvinist ethic that believed that hard work, um, free market, uh, conscience, working together, thrift, would produce an economic system that worked for everybody. But unfortunately, as I'm sure you know, Stacey, um, you know, we live in a culture which is postmodern. And, and the capitalism we have is therefore postmodern. So in many ways, it's the void of a moral compass, and it's resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraints. So we need to find a way to bring ethics back into capitalism so that we aren't tempted to try to replace it with some kind of utopian uh, economic system which is doomed to fail.
1: Okay, so can you talk about how Christians can impact that? Because there's, obviously, Christians are in the marketplace, Christians are in business, owning businesses, working for others, et cetera, and we have the opportunity to impact uh, the way capitalism is executed for good. How do we do that? Well, that
2: is a great question. In the book, in the last two chapters, I, chapters, I talk about redeeming capitalism from the bottom up and redeeming capitalism from the top down. And, and most of us don't have the influence to uh, redeem it from the top down, but it's an important narrative that we need to start. But we can all redeem it from the bottom up just in terms of how we view things like the nature of work and things like virtue and why, even in a pluralistic society, uh, Christians can be shining examples of virtue in the workplace. If if we do as the Apostle taught us to to treat our work as our worship, that's going to get people's attention. People are going to look at work as something much more important, much more fulfilling, uh, much more life-enhancing than just a means to a paycheck. And and I believe that what the Bible clearly teaches us is that the purpose of any economic system uh, is not just individual enrichment, it's human flourishing. So it starts with our, our theology of work. Uh, it, also, it also comes down to how we view our relationship with each other. You know, how do... How do people who are in positions of authority at work view their employees, and how do employees uh, view their fellow workers and their and their superiors? And I think, unfortunately, it's become very transactional, very contractual, uh, and the biblical model is, is one of mutuality, it's one of covenant, it's mutual interdependence, and it's relational. So those are the kinds of things that we as Christians can do uh, to start a long process of, of bringing virtue back into economics and into capitalism.
1: Wow. So I, i I know that God has a plan for everything that we do. He has a plan for uh, every aspect of our lives. We often don't plug into his plan. We try our own way. We try different, different ways of kind of fixing things, if you will. But God has a plan for our execution of capitalism and there's, there's a specific way that we can go about it. And you kind of touched on it a little bit when you talked about a work ethic and, and, you know, being honorable in your work and doing it for the glory of God, working for God instead of seeing, you know, your boss as your ultimate employer. And those are important concepts. But even in a postmodern society, we can execute God's plan for capitalism. What, what is that?
2: Well, as I said, I, I think the, the first and foremost principle is that we see Our economic system, as the purpose of it, is to, first of all, um, reflect the glory and the beauty of God in His creation. Uh, The Imago Dei, as it's called theologically, the image of God which is in all of us. That's where human flourishing comes through. But also in the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the mission of the Church, which is to bring redemption, to help us overcome the effects of sin. That's all redemption means, is that we overcome the effects of sin. So how we treat each other, um, how we uh, communicate with each other, you were talking about you know, the political discourse. The political discourse in this country uh, is is a very serious concern to me because it it, it seems as though we can't have uh, civil conversations with each other without resorting to tribalism and and screaming at each other and and uh, and not appealing to the humanity in each of us. So uh, it's the same in economics. Uh, we This this notion that somehow um, if everyone only looks after themselves, everyone will benefit, ethical egos it's called, is just not a Christian concept. Uh, A Christian concept for how we should conduct ourselves in business and at work, Uh, it's frankly that we love each other. And and I tell people that the three virtues missing most from our, our economic system today are the virtues of faith, hope, and love. We've lost faith. In God, we've lost faith in our institutions. Even capitalism, we've lost faith in. We've lost faith in each other. We've lost faith in the American dream. We need to bring faith back because faith breeds hope. Uh, And when people have hope, uh, then they're willing to put in the hours and do the things necessary to help with human flourishing. But it all starts with loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the bottom line. And it has to happen in economics as well as any other sphere of life.
1: Fantastic. Well, I will put the link to uh, the Amazon page for the book into the streams for everyone who's uh, paying attention on the different live streams on YouTube and Facebook, etc. And I encourage you, if you're listening terrestrially, please check out one of those streams on the Facebook page, perhaps, and you can click the link through and go over and check out the book. The title of the book is Redeeming Capitalism. Dr. Kenneth Barnes, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Stacey.
1: God bless. God bless. Great to speak with you. Uh, so, it's an interesting perspective. He's he's not saying that you know God God's a you know big cheerleader of capitalism, but out of all the systems that we have uh, to by which to do business with one another and to have a society, um, we really we're really doing pretty good with the capitalism. And so when we see corruption and we see things being done selfishly that that do not work. Um, it, it is incumbent upon us to find ways that we can glorify god and we can do things the right way and then we can still have capitalism work well for us as a society and so i think that's fantastic um if you want to call in and join the show i'd love to speak with you 866-963-2037
3: Hi, I'm Will Addison, and we are partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to save babies' lives through ultrasound. Here's how a nurse describes the power of an ultrasound. Last week, just one example of a mom who came in was very abortion-minded, and when she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and heard that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her. And she said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed.
4: By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in the womb, she will choose life 80% of the time.
3: I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool.
4: Underwrite a free ultrasound and help save a baby's life. Go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. All gifts are tax deductible. Your love can save a life.
0: Up next, Carol Swain with two minutes to think about it. From poverty to professor, from GED to Ph.D., a bold Christian speaking truth
5: to power. Here's Carol with today's two minutes. Hello, folks. I've talked to you before about how universities in the U.S. and other Western countries have taken a dramatic turn to the left in the last 50 years or so with an overrepresentation of leftist professors steeped in cultural Marxism. As of January 2016, the Open Syllabus Project stated that Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto ranked among the three most frequently assigned texts at American universities. That's quite a commentary on the graduates uh, high-priced universities are producing. If you don't think idealistic college students sitting around reading Marx is affecting their worldview, then here's a headline from the Daily Mail in London. Students are to communism, says leading professor, as student tells BBC, Soviet Marxism failed because it didn't have the chance to develop. The article goes on to say that 18 to 24-year-olds see business and right-wing pundits as a danger to the world rather than communism. The big danger is that leftist professors have these kids captive, all born after the Cold War, seeing things through rose-colored glasses. How much more time did communism need to develop? Seventy years of mass murder, oppression, starvation, and labor camps, not quite enough? hundred and seventy years would have just brought more of the same. We need to counter these lies with truth. And to do that, we too need to read the books that our children read.
0: To learn more about Carol and the Carol Swain Foundation, visit carolmswain.net. And make sure you follow her on Facebook at Professor Carol M. Swain and on Twitter at Carol M. Swain. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right.
1: Welcome back to the program, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Stacy on the Right.com is the website where you can subscribe and also get the really fun Stacy on the Right show mug. If you ordered one, they're going out tonight. So, um, right now it 's my pleasure to welcome Jay Cost, author of The Price of Greatness: Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the creation of american oligarchy he 's a senior writer for The Weekly Standard. Jay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me stacy yeah so let 's talk about this book that 's quite a mouthful there. What did you write? <laughs> well, the book is uh, a history
4: of uh, this this tumultuous relationship between these two giants of the American founding, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, were instrumental in creating the Constitution, the instrument of government. The, you know, the Constitution is actually the longest-running, active, cost, written Constitution in the nation. And the two of them were integral in writing it, defending it, and putting it together. But after, after the Constitution was ratified and the new government got underway, the two had this epic falling out. Um, and it really got down to big ideas that continue to define our politics in a lot of ways.
1: Hmm. Okay. So the epic falling out, which we all know about from, you know, our history lessons, we we're, you know, back in middle school and high school. Um, how does it kind of mirror things that we see today in, in our current politics or more recent po- political relationships?
4: Sure. Well, Hamilton had this really brilliant idea for advancing uh, the American economy, because, I mean, now America is the largest economy in the world, but uh, back when the country was founded, um, it was really just a a backwater. Uh, But Hamilton had this great idea, which was that if we favor the wealthy, because there were just a handful of people in the country who actually had money, Uh, if we favor them with public policy with our, uh, our banking policy and our debt policy and our, our uh, industrial policy, like our tax policy, they will in turn uh, bet on the success of the nation and they'll help develop the, develop the economy. It was a really brilliant idea that was vindicated over the ensuing century. The problem was is that it was really, frankly, unfair. It was very elitist, and as the, the title of my uh, book suggests, it was an oligarchy or led to a rule by the rich, which was uh, Madison's big objection to, uh, to Hamilton's idea. And I think that that continues to be a certain trade off that we, can, we have to make today. You know, uh, if you look at, for instance, tax policy, when we talk about targeted tax cuts to this group or that group, you know, oftentimes what the government is doing is playing favorites to one faction or another. Uh, and sometimes they'll say, oh, well, we have the best ideas but well, we have the best intentions at heart this will help grow the nation, but there's a real kind of um, partiality to public policy nowadays that I think you can see in the early republic
1: okay so um, and so but but did it work? Did this kind of nod to Wealthier people was that integral to the growth of our economy from a backwater into what is now the strongest economy on the face of the planet, or was it? Yeah. in spite of that.
4: No, it really was essential. Um, I, particularly on, on banking and the creation of a currency. I mean, nowadays we just you know we have dollars in our wallet, we just completely take it for granted. Uh, but the, uh, America's financial system and its currency system really was a complete disaster uh, when the country was founded. I mean, there was no such thing as a currency. And, in fact, what you had was state governments, 13 states would just print dollars that really were, like, worth nothing. Um, And uh, so what Hamilton was able to do, by creating a stable currency, really, I mean, you need to have a stable, reliable currency for economic growth. I mean, if people, if people can't count on the value of a dollar, then it's going to just get in the way of everything. Uh, and th- so that was really essential. The, the ironic thing is, and th- this is sort of gets to the title of the book, The Price of Greatness, is that um, Madison's criticisms were right as well. I mean, Hamilton was right on the economics, but Madison was right on the politics, that this led to corruption, it led to rule by the rich, and that there was a genuine trade-off between economic growth, and, and uh, you know, equal government, equal protection, and equal the, the government distributing the benefits and burdens of public policy in a fair and equitable way, that there was really a trade-off to be made.
1: So it worked, but now we have a completely different society. We have, you know, much—a uh, lot of what people call inequality, which— I, I I hate that I hate it when people talk about wealth inequality because the idea that everyone would have the same amount of money is so antithetical to the founding of this country, the ideals that we have that everyone can you know work as hard as they want or as little as they want, and no one 's going to be made to do anything it 's a ridiculous concept to hold both of those in the same brain, but you know there it is but, w- but when we talk about how huge our social safety net is now. And how really our progressive tax system actually punishes wealthier individuals by taking more of what they earn. The more you earn, the more the government not only just takes, but feels entitled to. And they they search around for ways to even take away the loopholes that allow you to keep more of it. Like the alternative minimum tax is my favorite one. You make a ton of money. We weren't making a ton of money before. You get into a place where you're in a no man's zone where they feel like they're owed more money. So they collect an extra five or six thousand dollars a year from you because the alternative minimum tax is more than what you really owe. It's it's the craziest thing ever, in my opinion.
4: (laughs) Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. Uh, the alternative minimum tax is just a terrible tax. Uh, you know, I think there's two ways to think about inequality, or at least there's, there are at least two ways, right? There's the one which you you suggested is that people are entitled to the fruits of their own labor, and that economic inequality is good in the long run for society because it is, it's just a byproduct of capitalism, which in the long haul advances everybody's economic interests over the long haul. I mean, you take the wealthiest person who lived, say, a hundred years ago, they didn't have access to the conveniences that the poorest among us have right now. I mean, that's just, that's how <laughs> capitalism works on the long haul. But I think there's another way to think about this, and it's political inequality. And The idea being, um, do the, should the wealthy have, or should certain groups of people have special access to government? Should they get their telephone calls answered before the average citizen? Should certain people, by virtue of how much money they make, by where they live, by what they do, should they have special privileges when it comes to politics? And I think that that is is a dimension of political debate that was really very relevant when the country was founded, and I think that that remains relevant today. Like I think if you ask most people... I don't. I think that most people agree with what you know. What you were saying is that people should be entitled to the fruits of their own labor, and that the frustration with sort of the wealthy is nowadays is more. I think wrapped up in this idea that well, if you're wealthy, you can basically buy a seat at the table, which in a republic you really shouldn't be able to do.
1: I agree with you, um, but I think the way that Washington D.C. is currently set up, where So that the the members now have admitted over the past couple of years, Jason Chaffetz kind of started the ball rolling and many of them have admitted that after. So the House, everybody in the House, once they're elected, they almost immediately begin to fundraise for the next election because it's two years away. Two years in political time is both an eternity and a blink of an eye. They have certain hours of every single day that they have to almost go into like a little booth or a tiny, you know, air controlled room and call you know, 100 people on this list or 30 people on this list to get them to say yes. The people on that list who are giving the larger dollars, they expect something in return for what they've given. And so it sets up this system that you've described, which is, uh, you know, it's it's political patronage. You're owned by the people who write you the biggest checks, the ones who attend your $30,000 plate dinners and so on and so forth, which means people like me, you know, I'm not getting return phone calls. Well, obviously, as being a person of the media, I can get a few return phone calls, but I'm not getting the kind of attention someone who wrote a check for 30 grand is getting. And so how do we, how do you undo that? Like, that is the big question that the Tea Party failed to execute on. They, they tried. That movement really got close to at least get making people more aware. But what, what do we do about that?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. I like to call it a conf- conflict of interest financing of politics is what it is. So because it's not just when those when those members of Congress go into a booth and start making telephone calls, um, they're not just calling random wealthy people. You know, if you sit on some if you're on the Energy and Commerce Committee and you have oversight over, say, the aerospace industry, you know, who's going to be the first people on the list you're going to call? It's going to be people in the aerospace industry, right? People who have business before whatever little subcommittee you're in control of, right? Um, and that is a really unfortunate thing because it ends up being that interest groups have this kind of uh, political power that it doesn't correspond to their numbers in the broader public, you know? And so, and oftentimes, this stuff happens at such a granular level that average citizens, it, it, completely below the radar. Like, you can be an expert in civics and study government for a living and still not have any idea of what they're actually doing in these committees. And, and, and more importantly, in the meetings that happen when the committee's not in session. And I think that one of the things that we have to recognize um, and I, I agree with you. I don't think the Tea Party reckoned with this, is, is that we need to recognize, number one, it is expensive to c- campaign for public office. It's just a lot of money. And number two, if we don't make due provisions for that, politicians are going to find that money somewhere. And right now they're finding it from interest groups that have business before the government, which is, I think, almost one of the worst ways you can finance politics.
1: Yeah, it is because when you talk about the the list um, that people are are utilizing, it's some of it is the list that they they you know the list that are built by party apparatus et cetera et cetera. Some of it is those donor lists that are cultivated by people who've been in, in politics for a long time, and those are two sources where I don't think a lot of people would have a problem with that. Like if you took a uh, you know a camera and a microphone out on the street, people would find those lists to be logical. But when you explain the list you just described where you're on this committee, it's one of the most powerful committees in Congress, you know, commerce or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you call the people who or or let's say you're on defense, you know, intelligence and defense or something like that. You're calling people in the defense industry. You're calling people who they literally are going to make billions of dollars based on your votes or they're going to make millions. That's a huge difference. That, yeah, I think, ab- people on the street ab- would be upset about, right?
4: Absolutely. In the previous book that I wrote was called A Republic No More, and I talked about this in detail. And One of the most astonishing examples of this that I found was uh, a lobbyist who was in front of a group of students at a college somewhere, and he said, well, what's the most important vote? They asked this lobbyist who was a defense contractor lobbyist what's the most important vote that you ever got? And she said, it wasn't a vote. I got behind the scenes in a markup hearing, I got them to charge, to, to buy my company's missiles for $30 million rather than $20 million, right? And... And, you know, our government spends trillions of dollars every year, right? So you said $10 million isn't that much of a difference. But if you multiply that, mm-hmm. again, all through Congress and all these different committees are doing the same thing again and again and again. It's just a huge problem. It's, it, 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 it It's really dangerous to have our politics paid for by people with business before the government. And by the way, it's not just campaign finance. You know, here's the revolving door. So, for instance, if you, you know, my, my former member of Cong, Congress, um, you know, when he left Congress, he got voted out in the Tea Party wave in 2010. He didn't come back home. He, he, he went and became a lobbyist for the health industry. You know, I mean, that's a huge, that's a very common occurrence as well. And you have to, you have to reckon But if you're a member of Congress and you're looking at retirement and you're thinking, well, I want to get a job at the health industry, you know, are you going to take a vote to anger your prospective employer? Of course you're not. And if you're not willing to do that for the good of your constituents, then whose side are you really
1: on? Which is why, you know, Jay, sometimes when you know you're sending someone, you know, you found this great candidate, right? this person is, they've got all the, all the right knowledge points. They they're, you know, from a background that you can identify with and they have momentum in the state and you want to send them to the Senate or the house. And then you kind of look back at the others that you sent. Like this, this has happened to me recently, quite a few times where I'm like, I was so excited about this person. They've been there for four years, six years, whatever. And I don't see them doing the stuff that they promised on the campaign trail. I mean, you've sat with these people around the table you know, and really listen to them talk about why they're running. And within a year of them going there, when they come back, they've been zombified. They're they're straight up Washington. And so it's like, it feels like there isn't any fix because the idea is of our representative republic is you send someone that you believe in to D.C. and they represent you. But these people don't represent us after they get there because you've just described why, why they don't like. I just, it, it's kind of an impossible, impossibility, frustrating thing. Yeah,
4: you know, it's its the old saying, you know, they went into politics to do good and they ended up doing very, very well. You know, I mean, look, it's a, it's a real problem and it's become a real problem. The larger the government has gotten and the wealthier the country has become, there are more opportunities for politicians to enrich themselves through public service right and it might not just be money i mean you think of it more broadly think of it in terms of honor right people looking up to you and thinking wow that guy's really important you know that's a real motivating force in human life and a lot of times these guys go to washington dc and they're like nobody but then they get there and everybody's taking their calls and everybody's interested in what they're saying and and everybody sort of snaps to when they walk into a room that is really alluring and it has a what i would say as you described when we're talking about a re- representative republic that is a corrupting influence on republican self-government
1: mm. wow great interview. Thank you, Jay, for coming on. I put the link to your book all over. Uh, People can buy it at the link at Amazon. Thank you for writing it. And thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Stacey. All right. Talk again soon. Jay Koss, author of The Price of Greatness and senior writer for The Weekly Standard, theweeklystandard.com. Hey, we'll be back with more after these messages.
3: The Capital One commercial will forever be etched in the ear of the listener. What's in your wallet is a phrase that won't easily be forgotten. But this is not a Capital One plug. I want you to think about the people that are in your circle of influence. Who's in your circle is my new catchphrase. Simply because we don't think enough about the people or spirits that we allow into our personal space. Negativity is contagious and fatal. Misery loves company and it's fatal to your hopes and dreams. I think we all know some. Someone who, no matter what good has happened, always has something negative to say. Ugh, that really bothers me. That bad attitude and that pessimistic spirit will only cause you to do the same. There's no room for doubt, especially if you're believing God to bring that vision to fruition. Now, this is not a license for you to be mean. It is, however, a license for you to assess who's in your circle and make the necessary adjustments. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. It's time to call your senators. We need to tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster. Switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Call
4: the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Senators respond to constituent calls. So call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference.
0: Listen to Stacy on the right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk.
1: She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday.
0: And insightful.
1: Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats.
0: But most of all, she's on the right.
1: That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left <laughs> just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the
0: right. Now heard weekday afternoons from two to four central on Urban Family Talk. Here's what you missed on airing the Addisons.
6: I asked them, I I pack all their stuff, and then I asked them to pack their own individual bags. If you have anything dear to you that you want to bring, that's your responsibility. I'm not doing that. You've got to do that. It teaches responsibility. You should do that. And and so I said, I said, J.D., get your backpack. And he said, what should I put in my backpack? I said, put in your backpack what is significant to you, buddy. This is what you want to bring. Anything that you're going to leave and you're going to think, oh, I want that, you bring it. Can I tell you, so I was hanging up his backpack last night at the hotel. Can I tell you what was in his backpack? What was in his backpack? His Bible and the Nerf gun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they, they cling to their Bibles and their guns. Oh! You got it, hey, at an early age. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good, Will. <laughs> that is hilarious. You don't know how funny that was. <laughs> Buddy, you don't know how funny.
0: Airing the Addisons, 6 to 9 Central on Urban Family Talk.
6: And so I'm hoping that he doesn't use the gun while holding the Bible. No, I'm just <laughs> hey, anyway, why not? Me and Maya. If, if We hear anybody.
0: Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk.
1: Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today at Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. You can go to nationalcenter.org and find out more about the blueprint, a better deal for black America. We are so excited to have that going on. So right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Bob Moffitt. The Heritage Foundation uh, is one of my favorite organizations. They are the go-to place for information if you need to understand the topic. They not only have the white papers, but they have the experts to come on and explain them. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Bob Moffett. Thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Stacey, it's a pleasure.
1: You know, I love learning from policy wonks. I know some people call that, they almost use it as an insult. But to me, there's nothing better than someone who takes the time to not just research a subject, but to be an expert on it. And something as difficult as Medicare funding and Social Security insolvency. These are topics that I don't want some, you know, once a week columnist who's only tackling this for one opportunity for 650 words to talk to me about this. I want an expert. So thank you for coming on today. Well, it's a pleasure. So let's talk about this. Uh, we we've known for decades. I remember being a kid and my parents, kind of being very sarcastic and caustic over the dinner table about Social Security being insolvent and how ridiculous it was that they had to pay into it if they knew it wasn't going to last. Yet that's still what we're doing now. I'm paying into it, and I have kids who one of them's working now. She's paying into it. What's the reason behind the continuing? It, it's getting closer and closer the insolvency date, and they keep dropping it closer and closer to today.
7: Yeah, well, as far as Social Security is concerned, I mean, Social Security is actually the easier problem. But it's uh, simply a transfer of money. I mean, it, it, there's no, there's nothing surprising about this. Uh, what we've got is we've got 77 million baby boomers, uh, people who were born between 1946 and 1964, 77 million of them. And now they're retiring at the rate of 10,000 a day. <clears throat> So, the Social Security system is uh, under tremendous pressure, uh, of course, to provide these uh, monthly paychecks, and of course, there, uh, with uh, with a large number of people demanding it, uh, you know, uh, with a large, larger and larger number of of, of people, uh, uh, you know, on the on the program, uh, the the amount, the the time, in other words, the time that we have. Uh, to pay out what we have been paying out. In other words, the full benefits that people have been promised is starting to get shorter and shorter, and that's why the the Social Security trustees have indicated that uh, the program is going to be insolvent uh, more quickly than we thought it was going to be. But that's not really a great surprise. I mean, a lot of people who have been following this issue have uh, projected that this was going to happen unless we started to start thinking about reforming this program for the next generation anyway.
1: So what are those reforms? I've had people on before who've talked about different options, and it usually ends up enraging the listeners because they've paid in and no one wants to hear that they need to retire later. But I've already started talking to not just you know my husband for our personal family planning, but I've even talked to our kids about the fact that the idea that you retire when you're 65 is no longer going to be an option for them. Like they they have to be mentally prepared before they enter the workforce, and they're they're still teenagers. Two of them are still in high school, but I'm talking to them about this because I think there's a really unrealistic expectation that you're going to be retiring at 65 and staying retired for 35 years because you know you live to be 90 years old. That's just not sustainable. Um, people have to be prepared to work longer than to work past 65 years old and to be saving their entire work lives in preparation for whenever they do retire? Oh,
7: I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, we're going to, we haven't, we have not been debating Social Security recently, but I think we're going to have to debate it. But let me get, uh, let me address the the first question you raised about, um, you know, people who have paid into it all their lives. That's correct. They've worked hard. They paid into it. Uh, they feel that they have an entitlement to the to to these benefits, and under the law they do. There's one problem with this, though, and that is is that people have a tendency to think that the money that they paid into the system while they were working is the money that actually finances their benefits. And that is a big mistake. I mean, there's, it's amazing. I mean, we've had Social Security since 1935, but people still don't understand it. The, the, the simple principle is Social Security is a, a pay-as-you-go system. What that means is that the benefits that you get in retirement are benefits that are being paid for uh, by workers who are working today. So it's pay-as-you-go um, the, when you were working in uh, in the workforce, you were paying into Social Security, but that money was going to the benefits, who were retired, the beneficiaries, uh, who were retired while you were working. The problem is, is that over the years, uh, the number of people who are working compared to the number of people who have been retired. Uh, is shrinking. (laughs) This is a real serious problem. You know, back in 1950, all right, back in the good old days, right, 1950, you had about 16 workers for every person who was retired.
1: Uh, Because people had families of five kids back then. three,
7: Three workers to each retiree, and in 2030, it's going to go down to two workers for every retiree, and that is the problem. I mean, the baby boomers, there's 77 million of them. But the other fact of the matter is, and it's just a basic demographic fact, is the baby boomers did not replace themselves. That's the reality. They didn't uh, have enough kids. You know, our birth rate has been going down. And uh, that has caused, uh, that is, closed, that is uh, part of the reason why we are facing a demographic crisis in Social Security and why Social Security is, is facing some very, very serious financial problems ahead.
1: And so in addition to people working longer and really not looking at retirement as something that happens at a specific date, but happens when they've saved enough money to retire, um, which means they might have to keep working part time for the rest of their lives because some people are not going to be able to get that magic. What we what used to be, you need a million dollars to retire is now becoming, you need two, three million, you know, every, every passing decade will ratchet that number up. But there's also the issue of you, you talked about demographics, you talked about the birth rate. As we inch further and further away from, I believe the latest number was 1.7, there are different sectors of our our public that have higher birth rates, but overall we're at about 1.7. What people need to be doing in addition to planning on working longer is talking to their children about the benefits of having more children. So instead of making child rearing sound like such a burden, instead of making it sound as if large families are an oddity or something to be pitied or something to be horrified by, Americans need to go back to that more traditional approach of saying, you know, we, we love kids. We love grandkids. We want you to have grandkids. We want to help out. We want to, you know, your grandkids can spend the night at our house on the weekends. You can go on dates. You know, we, we want you to live in the same town that we live in after college. We want to actually like your wife or your husband or, you know, whoever the the, the kids end up marrying. We want to have a good family unit so we can encourage you to have more kids. I know it takes longer to make population shifts but it's really the ideas behind it that we have accepted that are wrong that are bringing us to this point. Would you agree with that? Because I, I think it's yeah, more than one no, approach. No, I
7: think family breakdown uh, plus things like abortion have been a disaster for the social insurance systems. Um, you know, uh, we we are really having a difficult time of it. If you're a young person, uh, you're gonna the, the problem you're faced with is that even if you do pay into Social Security, you're not going to get back uh, the degree of the rate of return for your payment into the system um, that your, your grandparents did. I mean, the good news for seniors today is that the older you are, the greater the return on your payroll taxes into the system. Uh, the, the Government Accountability Office, which is the central you know, uh, auditor of, of uh, the federal government, has uh, done us a a big favor. They track the rates of return for various age groups. And if you were born in, let's say, 1900, like my grandmother was, and you you were 35 years of age when FDR, when Franklin Roosevelt, uh, enacted Social Security, well, when you you retired, you got a rate of return of about 15% on that money. (laughs) You you did Mm. terrific. You got twice the historical rate of return that anybody gets on the stock market. If you were born in 1920, like uh, you know the World War II generation, uh, you got a rate of return of you know about 8%, slightly better than the historic return on stocks, and that's all very good. But if you were born in 1960, the, the tail end of the baby boom generation, you got a rate of return on your Social Security money of between two and three percent. So what may have been satisfactory, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, this is the problem young people face, is that it's going to be very poor in the future. Uh, and uh, the, the problem is for young Americans that, who are paying into the system, the return on their tax dollars is going to be, get progressively smaller. And that is really a serious problem. Um, every male under the age of 38 is going to lose money in the current Social Security system. Uh, And that's just a fact. This is not a debatable issue. Uh, There's no nest egg in the current system. About 20% of males roughly get, you know, uh, 33%. Black males die between the ages of 50 and 70, meaning that they can pay a lifetime uh, worth of payroll taxes into the system, and black males will collect virtually nothing except the death benefit for the the widow. This is a problem. I mean, it's a very serious problem.
1: You're like you're you're Mr. Uh, Daniel Doomsayer right now. This is terrible. No, I,
7: I, I don't I don't believe that there's anything that is insoluble. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, Congress and, and the president uh, and Trump doesn't want to touch this stuff. I mean, he said so. The problem is, you know, it's the problem is not what we want to do. OK, Stacy. Mm, yeah. the problem is the math. <laughs> Well, you know But I mean? the math is the thing you it's can't argue. It's not a argue. question of what you want or what you think yeah. or what you hope or what you desire. The problem is the math.
1: And math is the one thing that we can't argue because no, math we can't. doesn't lie. There's nothing it's I correct, can do about it. Two yeah, two it's, or four. it's right. Yeah, so at this point, and I, I totally, I've, I've already heard the, the, and I understand. I actually understand why the president is is hesitant to to wade into this problem, as previous presidents have been. Barack Obama never even, like, he he would barely mention it, except to lay blame at the feet of Republicans, which I'm not sure exactly how the Republicans own this since the Democrats entered the trust fund. Barack
7: Obama, that is really the tragedy of Barack Obama. Barack Obama was, in fact, a really, is, in fact, a really smart guy. And he really understands this thing. But Neither Social Security nor Medicare he just simply wouldn't touch it He made a comment one time that Medicare and Medicaid are going to help drive america 's national debt into i mean he made it, he said it not some Republican, and he said if we don 't reform medicare it's not going to be there for generations when they need it that was not that's not you know that's not uh, you know paul ryan that 's Barack Obama. But the fact of the matter is, is you know, they can talk about it all they want. But the fact of the matter is, is that they haven't really done anything. And that's so a, what does that's it a look pro- like. President Clinton, now the President Clinton said that this was a serious problem. President Clinton, uh... you know, said this is a serious problem. Uh, the Controller Generals of the United States, the people who run the governmental accountability office, you know, said it. The Greenspan, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, prominent members of Congress know this. The American people are going to have to make a big decision about you know what we're going to do here. That but what does is that look like? Really the decision momentous.
1: you're talking about is is raising the retirement age. First of all, that's the first I think thing we that have has to. to. I mean,
7: we've kept the retirement age at sixty five since 1935. Now we raised it for Social Security to sixty seven. A lot of people don't even realize it because it was done right. We gradually raised it over you know. 15 years or 10, 10 or 15 years. But in 1983, they decided to raise the, you know, the, the, the age of normal age of eligibility for Social Security to 67. And so they've done it gradually. That's the right way to do it. But we've got to do the same thing with Medicare. If we do nothing and keep the, keep the system as it is, you're going to have to accept a worsening cash flow problem Uh, You're going to have to um, you're going to have to recognize that the baby boomers are well into retirement are going to start running into serious cash flow problems. Uh, You're just going to have to recognize that. Mm -hmm. And then the Social Security system, you know, at at some point will be insolvent. Well, the trustees have told us it's going to be insolvent.
1: So I I absolutely think um, it doesn't have to be as bad as as. No. You know, obviously it doesn't have to be as bad as it's been made out to be. And when I say bad, I mean, I mean the public relations nightmare that is every time it's brought up, oh, everybody yeah. gets upset and whoever brings it up is immediately almost, you know, burned at the stake. Oh, absolutely. When you, when you talk about stake, raising right. that limit, um, you know, you raise the age limit and it was done back in the 80s and most you said most people probably don't even realize it. That's what needs to happen with the Social Security age it has to be right. raised gradually well, we, over we've time. we've got it at
7: 67 now. We raised the age. We used to be 65. For Social Security, the normal age is 67. People have been uh, kind of graduating into it, you know, mm-hmm. the older they get. But that's what's happened. Now, that was not painful, frankly.
1: We need to do it again. And, we have and, to do it with Medicare. If we do it
7: with Medicare, we're starting to talk about big money.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, even for a Daniel Doomsayer, you still shared a lot of really great information. Well,
7: <laughs> I no, appreciate no. Your Look, time. Don't misunderstand me, <laughs> Stacy. Don't misunderstand me. There are ways to solve this problem. I believe uh, you. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it can be done. I think, frankly, uh, giving people an option to invest in uh, in in really secure private uh, retirement accounts makes a lot of sense. Uh, Federal employees have the Federal Thrift Fund. It's been working great. Uh, They can can allocate a portion of their payroll into that. We should be Mm -hmm. able to do the same thing for everybody else.
1: All right. Well, that music means we're out of time. Bob Moffitt of the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your time today, sir. We'll talk again soon. We'll be back with more right after this.